0: Last week's episode was a little bit um, gloomy, <laughs> uh, and I'm still listening to a lot of shiny, but I'm feeling less sad generally. So I thought we could pick the mood up a little this week. So I'm the sort of person who receives, with like a reasonable regularity, these kind of "Have you checked the children?" style calls from friends, imparting pieces of like pop cultural knowledge or requesting my thoughts on a particular pop cultural phenomenon. Like, I'll be sitting at home doing things that girls who die in horror movies first do, like brushing my hair in my underwear or whatever, and the phone will ring, and I'll answer, and a raspy voice on the other end will be like, None of the crows used to film the 1994 cult classic The Crow were actually crows. They used ravens, because ravens are larger. And then the line will go dead and I'll have to spend the next four hours with 97 tabs open researching corvids while the crow plays in the background because that's just how my brain works. Anyway, the other day, my friend Jamie, who you may remember as the Gordon Ramsay devotee from the first season of this podcast, or who, you know, you may know for his artistic talent, depending on who you are as a person, (laughs) uh, called me and was like, have you thought about Steven Seagal lately? It may surprise you to learn, dear listener, that I had not. (laughs) But boy, was I about to. Did you know that aside from doing questionable action movies, Steven Seagal has released two studio albums. They're called Songs from the Crystal Cave and Mojo Priest. Both of them have been critically panned. (laughs) The first album, features Stevie Wonder. The lead single from the second album was called Alligator (laughs) Ass. I'm not even offering commentary here. I'm just giving you the word salad that is Steven Seagal's musical career. Sometimes a person's Wikipedia page is enough to make you gather your friends around and have them hear all the details. Sort of like a get a load of this guy, but with references. And that's kind of what I want to do today. I'm Alex. This is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition. And today, I'm thinking about Steven Seagal. So, I will sort of forewarn you/pre-apologize for this episode. Normally when I'm writing these things, I try and draw out some larger point that I want to think about. You know, big themes like death or love or why action movies that feature the main character staring into the middle distance and saying the title of the film is a natural part of the dialogue or actually an elevated art form and we should all accept them as part of our lives. You know, big picture things. (laughs) Um, This probably won't be that. Maybe. It's unclear. Essentially, like when I started writing this episode, I was just reading Stephen Seagal's Wikipedia page out loud over the phone to Jamie in increasingly incredulous tones. And when I got to the like music career heading, I was just screaming the phrase alligator us, alligator us, alligator us down the phone. He's just the kind of person where the more you read about him, the more you're like, this guy is out in the world, unhindered by the conventions of polite society. (laughs) So what I'm saying is, I don't know what the hell I'm doing thinking about Steven Seagal. But this is probably going to be vaguely less informative than most episodes. Or, like, more informative in the sense that you'll come away with, like, a shitload of information about one of America's weirdest celebrities, but less informative in the sense that I don't know what either of us are going to do with that information once we have it. (laughs) Um, Anyway, this is probably going to be 20 minutes of me being like, look at him, seriously, get a load of this guy, Uh, and realizing why I never wanted to be a stand-up comedian. So let's do it, shall we? (laughs) If you're not familiar with Steven Seagal's body of work, that's okay. Um, Even if we're probably around the same age, by the time you developed any awareness of movie stars or celebrity, it's likely that he was already some sort of a weird punchline. Hollywood has this real knack for churning out celebrities that get extremely famous over the course of like two films and then really cement that fame by being absolutely batshit crazy in a way that ensures they live on forever through the medium of Simpsons punchlines and late-night talk show gags. The late 80s and early 90s had action heroes that fell into two categories. Guys who were big and muscular and could fight good because they were so big and so muscular, sort of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type thing, and white guys who knew a martial art of some description, like Jean-Claude Van Damme, for example. Steven Seagal falls into the latter category and much is made of his allegedly strong background as a martial artist. He was born in Lansing, Michigan in 1952 to a medical technician and a high school mathematics teacher. He made his name with films like Above the Law, Hard to Kill and Under Siege, which all feature Seagal as some sort of everyman who inexplicably has a background as like a former CIA operative that has somehow also allowed him unfettered access to martial arts training, rendering him unkillable. Now, I don't don't know how the CIA actually works, and I suspect that much of the job is actually just paperwork, but, like, imagine if the U.S. intelligence agency was actually just an extended ring of karate dojos disassembling small latin socialist regimes with the power of the almighty american karate chop or something (laughs) uh anyway the two immediate questions that i have when i think about steven seagal are which specific martial art does he practice and why did that make him so famous now this is probably an unnecessary look for you inside the horrible machinations of my gremlin brain which i must endure daily but it turns out that attempting to provide simple answers to these questions kind of only builds out more complicated questions about the history of kung fu movies and men with dubious credentials. But I'll do my best to summarize. Steven Seagal practices Aikido, which is a Japanese martial art that was originally developed as a synthesis of martial arts, philosophy, and religious practices. The practice's originator, Morihei Ueshiba, saw it as an expression of his personal philosophy of peace and reconciliation. It was extremely influenced by this neo-Shinto religion called Omoto-kyo, which emphasized extending love and compassion to those who would seek to harm others in order to achieve a kind of personal utopia. The primary aim of Aikido is to allow the practitioner to defend themselves while also not harming their attacker. There's a weapons practice associated with it, but the primary moves revolve around defensive throws and joint locks that are supposed to neutralise your opponent without inflicting fatal harm. Stephen Seagal's history has been so shrouded in personal mythology that it's actually a little bit difficult to unpack how he got started with Aikido and why. The official party line is that while working as a dishwasher in a Californian restaurant, the Japanese line cook introduced him to the art of karate, and encouraged him to visit Japan. While in Japan, he discovered Aikido and studied under Morihei Uwashiba himself, earning a seventh dan black belt. Eventually, he married Miyako Fujitani, a second-degree Aikido black belt and daughter of an Osaka-based Aikido master. Eventually, he became the first foreigner to operate an Aikido dojo in Japan. Now, <laughs> if all of that sounds a little bit too good to be true, it's probably because it is. Morihei Ueshiba died in 1968, which would have meant that Steven Seagal would have had to have been under 16 and living alone in Japan for the timelines to match up. Now, we know that he was enrolled in college between 1970 and 1971, and it's likely that he was in Japan from around 1971 to 1973, because he married his wife after meeting her in California in 1974. He moved with his wife back to Japan in 1975, where Miyako helped operate her family's dojo, possibly with some help from Stephen. The dojo did remain a family affair, though, and Miyako's family still runs it, presumably without Seagal's involvement because they got divorced in 1986. So if Aikido is ostensibly like a pretty gentle martial art with a strong focus on peace and harmony and not incapacitating your enemies with a neck breaking to the throat, then why is it showing up in a bunch of truly awful 80s and 90s action films? And how has Steven Seagal, a man who's built a career on telling people how deadly he is both on screen and off, its most famous practitioner, this is what I mean about a can of worms because now I'm pretty sure I have to talk about the prevalence of kung fu movies in America. God, this is a nightmare. No one ever asked me about a random action star again. I'm kidding. Please definitely do it. I'm learning so much about martial arts. Who knows what other cans of worms I could possibly open. Okay. So in the early 1970s, America was hit with this wave of kung fu movies. Literally everybody was kung fu fighting for fun and profit. So in 1973, 15 of the top 50 films were imports from Hong Kong. Where previously films had been subtitled versions designed for a diasporic American audience and had showed primarily in Chinatown, their increased popularity resulted in many imports being dubbed in English for showing in mainstream theatres, and a slew of these like joint Hong Kong-US productions like Enter the Dragon. As someone whose main love in life is a really good fight choreography, I feel like it's easy to understand the sudden popularity of these films through the lens of contrasting action styles. Hong Kong kung fu films have deliciously formulated plots with great displays of physical grace and power. Martial arts require such a degree of control that they translate really beautifully on screen and they're exciting to watch. And when you compare that with American action films from around the same time, which were like westerns or police films, kung fu movies are a whole new type of action. That's the easy explanation. Um, Of course, there is a slightly more academic one. Daniel Martin suggests that in a post-Vietnam War America, moviegoers were fixated on this, like, orientalist idea of martial arts as being somehow ancient and mystical possibly as a way to process the fact that all of the technological might of the US still didn't manage to bomb Vietnam into total submission. Lots of the recurring motifs in these films uh, focus on like Chinese cultural practices that are supposedly untouched by modernity and therefore imbued with a kind of magic. Either way, once these films started to gain traction in the US market, moves were made to assimilate and Americanize the protagonists. Now, normally when you're talking about uh, assimilation and Americanization, you're actually referring to whitewashing, which is the process of replacing a diverse character list with a bunch of white people. But in the case of Kung Fu, the casting was actually pretty diverse, and the genre had this really close relationship with the black community. Lots of black exploitation flicks that were popular at the time drew on kung fu stylings, which is why you have groups like the Wu-Tang Clan using kung fu motifs 20 years later on albums like 36 Chambers, which takes its title from a 1978 kung fu film, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, which I highly recommend watching. But I digress. The reason I'm bringing up the Americanization of these films is that I think it's inevitable that at some point the cultural sieve slash like Hollywood money machine will realise that cool shit happening in niche pockets of cinema is worth big bank, and will immediately assume that these things can be improved with a white lead. Which meant that as elements of the genre started to appear in American cinema with more regularity, you also get a wave of white martial arts guys in leading roles. Warner Brothers were casting the net around for their next martial arts star, and Steven Segar was recommended by a former pupil of his and brought in for a demonstration. Now, Aikido, if you watch it, is actually a pretty graceful art form. There's lots of emphasis on throwing people in these sort of big, beautiful arcs. So you can see why it would translate really well on screen. If you stand reasonably still and you have some guy flipped over ass up using only the gentle curve of your palm, you're going to look cool as hell. Steven Seagal saw this beautiful, peaceful martial art and said, Give me a gun so that I can shoot that guy that I just flipped like a pancake. Which is about as American as apple pie, to be honest with you. So that's how Steven Seagal ended up as an action star. Why is he such a fucking nutcase? (laughs) Okay, there's not a huge number of interviews with Seagal. So at first glance, it might be a little bit difficult to establish the freak show pattern. But trust me, it's there. I'm trying really hard not to just like read you a list of some of the fuckery that's on this Wikipedia page. Like this gem of a line. Segal has an extensive sword collection and once had a custom gun made for him once a month. Once a month? Once a month. <laughs> but in the interest of not just screaming alligator us at you, I'll attempt to provide some commentary. Very early on in his career, Seagal became really heavily involved in the production of the films that he starred in, which gave him unprecedented control over his own on-screen mythology. And in doing so, I think he very much drank his own Kool-Aid and genuinely believes himself to be some sort of CIA, special forces, world's most unkillable guy type of man, Every single movie that he appears in features him in one of these roles and almost never comes up against any real opposition. He simply flips his opponents out of the way or nails them with a bullet between the eyes. It's actually almost boring to watch, his kills are so efficient. And having never met a worthy opponent in his cinematic career, I think he genuinely thinks that he is unmatched outside of movie land too. In fact, he has a reality show, Steven Seagal, Lawman, <laughs> in which he performs his duties as a reserve sheriff's deputy uh, because that is a thing that he also is. <laughs> in one of the rare interviews that's still floating around, the journalist asks him if, in his advancing age, he's still dangerous, and he just smirks and goes, oh, yes. This happens after he has essentially called Jean-Claude Van Damme who is an internationally awarded karate champion with the nickname The Muscles from Brussels, calls him a wimp. And then he says that Chuck Norris, who is a man with his own specific type of martial art that he developed and who has fought Bruce Lee on film, was too old to fight. This man thinks that he is unkillable. I think to reach this kind of level of, like, high on your own supply... You have to feel as though your life and your work are somehow inextricably linked. Seagal's B-movie career has been built on the foundation of yanking martial arts styles out of Japan. But like so were lots of peoples and you don't see them aged 68 wandering around in Mandarin college shirts with spray painted hairlines bowing to the cameraman. <sighs> so how do you merge the two things? Okay, hear me out. I have a theory. If you look at On Deadly Ground, which is a film largely considered to be the most sagal of all of the films, in that he produced, directed, and acted in it, it heavily implies that he might be a First Nations person, specifically Inuit, and that he is the reincarnation of some sort of spiritual leader who can save the people. Now, that's just a movie but i want you to briefly attempt to get into the mindset of a white man who has fetishized exotic i'm doing inverted commas around exotic exotic cultures his whole life now imagine you suddenly have the money to insert yourself into situations where you definitely do not belong you did that movie with a bunch of first nations alaskan people but for some reason They didn't accept you as a reincarnation of the Great Sky Spirit, a thing that you think you read about once or maybe made up, it's unclear. You know that you're destined for greatness. So what do you do? Well, perhaps you draw on your knowledge of Buddhism. You read a book once, and like all of the pages in the book, not just the summary notes, and you've heard about this thing called a tolku, which is a reincarnated custodian of a specific lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Now, all you gotta do is find a guy who can make you a tulku, and bam! <laughs> You're officially the spiritual leader you've always believed yourself to be! In 1997, Lama Pinor Rinpoche, the supreme head of the Yingma school of Tibetan Buddhism, announced that Sagal was the reincarnation of a 17th century treasure revealer of the Yingma. Now, normally, Tolkus are found following the immediate death of the previous Tolku and trained from a really young age for a life basically within the monastery as like a figurehead position. This is obviously not what happened to Stephen Seagal, and there were accusations that he bought his status through donations to the Lama's Maryland Study Center. For his part, Panor says that Seagal was merely recognised and not enthroned as a Tolku, and therefore it totally wasn't the same thing and it's not like he's killed anyone anyway, despite what Stephen Seagal says. Anyway, three years later, Seagal had parlayed his status as enlightened into making himself the protection detail for the only child of the 10th Panchen Lama. Essentially, he anointed himself to be the physical defender of the reincarnation lineage for Tibetan Buddhism, which is A, an insane series of things to say out loud, B, probably not that great of an idea since I don't think he's half as deadly as he thinks he is, and C, potentially the most incredible grift ever performed, except that I think he genuinely believes his own bullshit. He's like a cult leader without the magnetic personalities, just all religious zeal and no following. In the interest of this episode not being four hours long, I'm going to have to not go into too much detail on the rest of this man's cartoon existence. But to round out the episode, here's an abridged list of other pieces of absolute batshit behaviour that I didn't have time for. Steven Seagal holds citizenship to the United States, Serbia and Russia, He's called Putin a brother and for his part Putin has basically said I saw some of his movies once and now he won't leave me alone. He's banned in the Ukraine essentially for calling the annexation of Crimea by Russia very reasonable. That's a direct quote by the way very reasonable. He once claimed that he was immune to being choked unconscious due to his extensive Aikido training so stuntman Gene Labelle consensually choked him unconscious and he shit himself he denies this vehemently. He claims to have been one of the first people called after Brandon Lee, son of Bruce Lee, was killed on the set of The Crow. He claimed to have predicted when they called him that they would find a projectile lodged in Brandon's stomach. I don't know what could have possibly given that away, certainly not the gaping stomach wound that killed him. Seagal claims to have helped Brazilian UFC fighter Lioto Machida perfect the kick that took out Randy Couture in 2011. Steven Seagal's career is just a large cautionary tale about what happens when you take yourself too seriously and are willing to hang your hat on facts that are easy to disprove. That is that you turn yourself into a fucking cartoon character there's probably some serious points that I could make about, like, cultural appropriation and the distasteful nature of literally everything the man's ever done, but it's not worth it. Like I said at this point, Seagal is mostly a punchline. Well, that was the Steven Seagal episode. Get a load of that guy! (laughs) Absolutely off the rails. Beyond all of his like awful behaviour, I just think the wildest thing to me is that he's so hell-bent on being unkillable on screen that it's not even interesting to watch. Like, at least Jean-Claude Van Damme lets himself get thrown around. At least Jean-Claude had the decency to make the Street Fighter movie one of the greatest, most camp-action movies to ever star Kylie Minogue. Uh, Anyway. Let's not talk about Steven anymore. Talk to me about the Street Fighter movie next time you see me at the pub. Peace. Howdy, Bernardinos. Hope you're enjoying season two so far. If you are, it'd be great if you could leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you're not, well, fuck you, basically. We're taking a short hiatus, but don't worry, we'll be back with more pop culture burner goodness on the 28th of April. Alligator Ross!